Welcome to the Strive for More podcast. My name is Jared Hendry and I'm the founder of the Strive Accelerator. We are a group of young entrepreneurs that you've probably never heard of and we figured out that a community of like-minded people is the only way to ensure we flourish in business, in our relationships, and in our lives. This podcast is dedicated to uncovering the stories of the communities around successful people that got them to where they are, and in the process, we'll break down barriers for you to succeed too. Alex Rucker grew up in British Columbia, Canada, where he split time between Prince George and Vancouver. He initially attended the University of Western Ontario for two years prior to transferring to the University of British Columbia. He graduated from UBC with a Bachelor of Commerce, while at the same time, he was working part-time for the NBA expansion team, the Vancouver Grizzlies, from 1995 to 1998. Alex later graduated from Notre Dame University in South Bend, Indiana with a law degree. And after gaining admission to the California State Bar, Alex joined the U.S. Navy and served as an officer and naval aviator for 11 years. During the final years of his naval service, Alex worked as an analytics consultant for the Toronto Raptors. When he separated from the Navy, Alex and his family moved to Toronto to pursue his dream of working full-time in the NBA. He worked in analytics with the Raptors for seven seasons before being hired as vice president analytics and strategy for the Philadelphia 76ers in the fall of 2016. Two years into his time in Philadelphia, Alex was promoted to executive vice president basketball operations, a role where he directly supports general manager Elton Brand while overseeing all aspects of Sixers basketball operations, player development, athlete care, scouting, and research and development. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, let's get right to it, my friend. So first and foremost, I think that you have had probably the coolest assortment of jobs that I've ever heard. It's almost like your life is a bit of a movie. Um, And sorry to put that on you, but you've been a lawyer, you've been a pilot in the Navy, you've been the head of analytics for an NBA team, and now you're the executive vice president of operations for the Philadelphia 76ers. So with that said, and knowing where you are professionally, I want to ask you a question about the people that helped to get you where you are today. And the reason that I'm asking this is because I think in society, we're often told this story that successful people only accomplish things by themselves. There's this myth of the powerful solo entrepreneur or solo business person or solo successful person. And I think it's important that we highlight the communities, the connections, and the individuals that helped advance the careers of leaders in business so that success maybe doesn't seem so far off for um, for those of us in maybe a younger generation. So with all of that said, I'm wondering, Alex, can you think of anybody early on in your career, either in the Navy or in professional basketball and outside of the Philadelphia 76ers now, that really helped you move your career forward, even though maybe they didn't have to? Yeah, and I think that you're, you're touching on a really essential thing for kind of really anyone's success, but certainly in, in the entrepreneurial world. Um, yeah, I mean, I can remember back even and go all the way back to high school when, you know, a, a good friend of my father's, Tim Perrin, who's a, an attorney in British Columbia, um, you know, was kind of around a fair amount and he sort of played kind of a godfather role in my life. And I remember at one point um, when I was literally sitting in my room kind of with a bunch of baseball cards 
and just really studying the statistics in the back of them. Uh, hmm. And, you know, he was sort of saying like, hey, like you should find these things you love doing. You're really, really smart. You, you can do whatever you want academically. Um, but like there are paths for you in any you know part of the world that you're interested in. And if sports is your thing, that's awesome. You should pursue that. You can do that. Uh, and, and kind of as a, you know, just a kid in Canada and Vancouver, that hadn't occurred to me, honestly, um, that you know, like I'm, I was aware that people worked in sports, but it wasn't something that had occurred to me as something that I could, you know, kind of actualize and make a part of my life. And my, my father was a professor. My you know, mother was an accountant. It's like normal working class people. Uh, and so to, to think beyond that wasn't anything that had occurred to me. Uh, so I think that, you know, I, I'm grateful for Tim, Tim Perrin for really kind of um, opening my eyes to really kind of a broader horizon. Um, and that kind of gave me the confidence and the, and the initiative, I think, to explore some different things uh, in sports. And then, and as you said, kind of in the, as I followed the circuitous path of my life uh, in the Navy, I was, you know, blessed. And again, we're fast forwarding here, you know, 10, 15 years uh, from high school. Uh, you serve under a lot of different kind of commanders and with a lot of different officers and colleagues. And, and I think you learn a lot from different ones of them. But uh, I had one commander in particular at my first aviation squadron, uh, George Vasilakis, who uh, was just such an inspirational leader for me to observe and learn from. Uh, just as a member of his command, but you know, at a certain point, he sort of took an interest in my my career and, and my growth, and that that was incredibly humbling in and of itself. Um, but you know, he was someone that was able to lead, but lead from a very kind of moral, principled place. And you know, he him kind of grabbing me, taking me under his wing, and sort of you know, opening my eyes again to. Like I didn't, it never occurred to me that like I could be a leader, right? Like I, you know, it's like I did well in school and I, and I did well when I had jobs with a thing. If you gave me a job, a thing to do, I could do it well, uh, depending on what it was. But uh, mm -hmm. he really opened my mind and kind of I was an officer. I was our job was to lead, but I was a pilot and I was you know good at flying planes. And um, he really pushed me into hey, you know, you can manage a group of people and really have an impact on their lives just because of who you are. And, and again, that hadn't really occurred to me. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, I'd say that those two, two gentlemen I was blessed with kind of them propelling me to a different level than I certainly would have gotten to otherwise and on my own, if that makes sense. I can see why maybe you didn't think about sports as kind of a next step or something that was possible, because I think a lot of us are, we see that as a job that's removed, a job that's like an astronaut where it's so difficult to get into. But I'm mm -hmm. wondering why, do you know why you didn't think about leadership at that time, knowing you as a person? Like, I feel like you're you've got so many of these strong leadership qualities. It's interesting that you maybe didn't think of that early on. I think it's like, it's how we're socialized and just, you know, growing up and the examples we have in, in, in art and, and, you know, whether it's movies or TV or, you know, the, the examples of leaders that we're exposed to are kind of the, the great man thing where like the charismatic rah, rah, that thing. Um, and that's not me, right? Like I, I'm not, you know, it's, you've played sports, you know, like the different leaders have different personalities and demeanors and the kind of, the one I was exposed to growing up was not something I identified with. And so the notion of leading by, you know, being a good person and caring about people and helping to inspire them in, in a quiet way. Like I didn't, like if you described how I am now to how I was then, that would have been mind blowing to me. Like I, it wouldn't have occurred to me that that was a path to being an effective leader. Do you know what George saw in you to kind of push you towards leadership? Um, 
I mean, you'd have to ask him as the real answer. <laughs> He's um, going to be our next guest. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I think if you asked him, what he would tell you is that again. I think it's the. I was very principled, and he saw that very quickly. That you know, in, in the military context, you're required to like. There's a very clear chain of command and a very clear hierarchy, and I was cognizant of that and respectful of that. But I also felt as though I had something to contribute to people that were senior to me. Um, I was very mindful in how I did that, but in his case as a commanding officer, when he would ask for my opinion or ask how I thought about something, I would give him my honest feedback, uh, even if that was critical in some, in some ways of decisions he'd made. Or if I didn't understand, I might ask, hey, well, why did you do that? It doesn't make sense to me. I interpreted it this way. Um, and I think he welcomed that that dialogue, but also saw that it came from a place of, like, I was sure. trying to understand. I, I want to be good. I want to understand. I, I think you're good. I just want to understand why, because that didn't seem so great. Um, and so just... I think it was kind of my inquisitive nature coming from a principled place, I think. Have you told Tim and George the impact that they've had on you in the past? Yeah. Oh, no. I, like, it's, so what, one, of the, one of the big takeaways, actually, from my time at the Naval Academy um, as, a, as a teacher there was sort of the value of feedback and, and kind of the, the two-way value there. And I think that it's, like, ironically, like the, one of the things, <laughs> I'll kind of weave two strands together, uh, you know, Kobe Bryant and his daughter passed a couple of weeks ago, which was, you know, a real tragic thing yeah. just as a kind of icon of my generation, a uh, fanhood, if you will. Of um, course. And that was a really powerful reminder, I think, that every, every day is a blessing. And, like, you know, don't let opportunities pass by to tell people you love them and tell people you care about them and tell people you're grateful. Uh, and, and both Tim and George are people that, you know, I've made a point of, made a point from the various points of the past of, of letting them know, like, listen, you know, when you told me this or when you shared this with me back then, it was really powerful for me. Um, and again, that's, it's, again, and you, I've gotten to a point where I, I don't define success by really anything I do. I don't think I'm that important, but it's for sure the case that I have an opportunity to impact others. So when others have impacted me and, and I haven't a chance to let them, let them know about that in a positive way, I know how rewarding that is for me on, on the other direction like if someone tells me that um so for sure there's kind of a, a moral obligation to do the same so so yeah <laughs> a super long answer but um you know tim knows how much i value love and respect him uh george also knows how much i value love and respect him um yeah you mentioned that success is now for you defined by the impact that you have on other people how do you ensure that you have that impact i i'm not sure you can ensure it right like I, th I think that it's an it's an important value to have, you know, the, the, to have an impact, to help elevate others, to help inspire others. Um, I think it's arrogant in the extreme to think that you can do that. If that makes sense, like I, I think that it's it's what you should head towards, and you know, I think that it's important to care about those things. To to like to me, being a good person is the impact you have on others, and so I think it's essential to identify ways identify ways that you can do that. Um, and then, you know, kind of to, to, to your point earlier, you know, the feedback point of, you know, let's find out if you are, right? I mean, you don't know unless you ask. And I think that everyone loves feedback as long as the feedback is positive. And so where you're in a situation where maybe I'm succeeding, maybe I'm failing, I'm not quite sure. Asking that question is scary, especially of kind of a, a subordinate or a colleague. Uh, like, hey, yeah, you know, this matters a lot to me. How do you think I'm doing? How do you feel about this? Is this, you know? Has it been positive for you? Um, 
and being really open to that feedback and, and being open to circling back a week later when they've had a chance to think about it. And hey, have you tried because those are heavy questions that people maybe haven't thought about in the moment. Um, but you know, given a little bit of time, I think that you can learn so much. And I feel like people, or maybe it's just me, are, are not great at kind of self-assessing and self-understanding, and that we learn so much about ourselves through others and through through others' eyes and through others' experiences. Um, so, yeah, like it, it, it's really important to me. I don't know that I'm good, um, but I try and I think I use the right paths or I use some paths to get there. Well, I know you're having an impact on me, Alex, a real positive impact on me just by being on this show. And I know that from the quality of the person and the quality of your character, I know that this interview is going to provide a lot of benefit for other people. Um, so I want to just go back to the beginning a little bit. Like we know currently that you're with the Philadelphia 76ers, but I'd be interested to know how did you initially get involved in basketball in the first place? Sure. No. So growing up, I was always kind of, you know, school was school, but I also loved sports. And so I, interestingly, when I was younger, it was mostly swimming and baseball. Uh, And then for whatever reason, sort of, it was early high school, kind of grade eight. I'd moved to Vancouver with my father uh, attended, you know, Sir Winston Churchill High School in Vancouver, and I think it really was my first year there where, you know, I, basketball, I grew up in Prince George when I was younger, uh, and basketball wasn't really a thing there, <laughs> as far as I can tell. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe it was, I didn't notice, but... It's too uh, cold. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's true. We're, we're the indoor sports, and then baseball in the summer. Uh, so, you know, in high school, I was exposed to, to basketball and just enthralled, right? Like, I, I, I can't explain... I guess I sort of can. Like, I love baseball and to, for a certain reason and in a certain way. And then kind of I love basketball and even soccer in a different way in that they're just these kind of dynamic, fluid, complicated games that are just – like baseball is easier to understand for me, right? Like it, it makes sense, um, whereas soccer and, and basketball are much more complex and fluid. And just I love the beauty of the game, and I always have, and then just – I think it was probably, you know, grade nine year where you know, I started watching a little bit on TV and just was enthralled by the NBA and just, you know, kind of that was at kind of late 80s, early 90s. So kind of when NBA was really blowing up on kind of the world stage. Uh, and so just there was so much talent on the court, you know, like the Michael Jordan, uh, you know, Larry Bird. I can distinctly remember watching Larry Bird at the three-point contest you know, when I was younger and just things like that, where, um, these little, these little seeds were planted so that when I was kind of going through high school, it was a thing that I was, you know, you're very emotional and hormonal at that point, And I was falling madly in love with the sport. So, um, I think that's how basketball started. Uh, and then, you know, I, I played casually in high school, but you know, some people in life are, you know, gifted with athletic gifts, hand-eye coordination, size, explosiveness, whatever. Um, I didn't have those gifts, <laughs> so <laughs> um, I, I recognized really, you know, kind of midway through high school that, you know, if, if it was something I was going to do working in sports, it was going to be, you know, from a more cerebral perspective than a physical one, um, and so that sort of informed, you know, different choices I made going forward. You mentioned, Alex, that you were hormonal and emotional as a teenager. Does that go away? Um, I, I mean, my understanding of um, medical science leads me to believe I'm, I'm less hormonal now than I used to be. I mean, uh, for me, does do I have a future to look forward to? No, I, I think that the the emotional thing for sure is a thing, right? Like, I, it's 
sports kind of athletic <laughs> competition i think it, it no it, it feeds some like fundamental aspect of the human character right like it, you know the the degree to which we are attached to these team sports or individual sports and just you know the joy of success and winning and, and the the frustration and hollowness and, and anger associated with losing i mean i think i don't enjoy losing but like I, just the roller coaster ride of humanity and of sports and of the, of the emotions that go along with it. I mean, it's in some ways kind of profoundly rewarding and fulfilling. Sports is very much life, I think, even when you were speaking about uh, basketball and soccer and how I see those sports maybe as being unique because they've got kind of a, a start and an end point. And then there's just flow in between those, mm-hmm. uh, very much unlike baseball, which is. Uh, obviously segregated by innings and outs. And I was interested to kind of pick on the difference there for you. What's, what's that point between baseball and soccer and basketball that means you're more interested in basketball? Yeah, I mean, baseball, we, you know, kind of in the data world, we joke that baseball is more binary, right? Like if baseball is much more, most of the interactions are more linear and involve two people, right? So like when, when you're, you know, Half the time we're on defense, half the time on offense. We're on offense. Every ninth, you know, batter is you, and you go up there, and it's just you and the hitter, right? And it's that in of itself is this kind of interesting, complex game, but it's still a like one v one, and we'll see how it works out, and it'll generate one of these set of outcomes, right? And if you get on base, it's sort of the same thing. It's like I'm a first, can I steal second? That's a function of a few things, but you're making a cho- almost all the choices in 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 baseball are like this or that, right? Um, and so it just I think it's a simpler, more straightforward sport to, to do, to think about. It's super hard to do, right? Like I get that part, but um, from an intellectual exercise, from a just, it's, and, and I'll, and I'll set, preface this by saying I am not an art person. So I'm going to speak <laughs> about art in a way that may or may not make any kind of sense to any rational, you know, well-informed artistic person. But uh, I, I feel like baseball is much closer to science and the other sports are much more close to like art, meaning they're kind of fluid and dynamic. And there's all these, you know, interactions that are very complex. Um, I just, yeah, I'm not sure if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it does. And your interest in basketball eventually transitioned where you got a job with the Vancouver Grizzlies. I think when they kind of first started, can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. So uh, the, the answer to that sort of rewinds two years prior to the, their expansion or you know, when they, they came into being. So when I went away originally to college to the University of Western Ontario, um, I actually went out to school a week before the first day of classes. Um, and I did that in part because I wanted to be involved with the basketball program. So uh, I went out there. I you know kind of basically camped out <laughs> the coaching office. Until I had an opportunity to meet with the head coach at the time, a gentleman named Craig Boydell, uh, who since retired. But, um, you know, he let me be a manager. So it was sort of on the one hand, the traditional, you know, sweeping the floor and, you know, making sure uniforms are ready type stuff. Um, But it was also a fun time because that was when they were transitioning to this kind of computerized courtside stats accumulation, right? Like previously sort of in the 80s and uh, early 90s, I guess, they just tabulated stats by hand. Uh, points, rebounds, assists, so on. Mm-hmm. And they were transitioning to use a computer, and I loved computers. So it was sort of a way to marry a couple of different interests or, or skill sets. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years. And sort of because of the you know relationships that exist within sports, uh, he was able to kind of encourage me to pursue some different opportunities 
with the national program or, or back on the West Coast at home. Um, and that led to some, again, relationships that when the Grizzlies uh, kind of were, you know, created, if you will, their expansion year, um, they reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in helping out with their, you know, kind of courtside stats team. Uh, you know, and I was, whatever, I guess, 19 years old and, uh, you know, an NBA team is saying, hey, you want to come and, you know, watch NBA games from courtside at center court and take stats? And you said, um, I'm sure you said no. Yeah, yeah, that's, exactly, that's what happened. And I said no, and here we are. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. So that was an overwhelmingly positive offer to me. I was like, oh my, really? I, you know, I'd been to a bunch of games in Seattle and stuff like that, but you know, the opportunity to to be there on the ground floor and you know, it was just it was overwhelming at that point. So uh, I transferred back to UBC uh, because of that, and um, was able to kind of work on, on, on at the stats table there and just again. You know, there's you know Michael Jordan, and there's Dikembe Mutombo, and there's you know David Robinson, and just kind of all of these people that I looked up to and admired as a fan, and you know they're right in front of me. So just a chance to get to see them and observe them and kind of learn from a much closer position uh, was just an incredible opportunity for me. How did you know how to merge both the statistics in basketball and the computer piece? Was that something that you had done before? Or if not, how did you learn that? So, yeah, I was really lucky. Uh, when I was, I guess I would have been five or six years old. So uh, back in like 1980, 1981, um, my father purchased a home computer, <laughs> TRS-80. Uh, <laughs> and so not by design, but I basically learned how to use computers from age six on, which was very unusual for, you know, again, somebody in the early eighties. Um, and so that was the computer thing was always sort of this, again, mysterious, complex, cool thing. And they could do neat stuff. And, you know, so I learned to use a computer and I learned, you know, playing these kind of text games, which is like these almost choose your adventure type things where I didn't have a manual. So I'd have to kind of figure out by typing in different commands, what would generate some kind of response from the program. Uh, and so, by the time I got to high school and then, you know, beyond, I was pretty good at computers. Um, and, and at that point, you know, you sort of alluded to it that there wasn't a real large intersection, especially in Canada, between people that were passionate about basketball, but also knew how to use computers well. Um, mm -hmm. So that that definitely provided me with some opportunities, you know, that the Grizzlies one in particular, um, that certainly wouldn't have existed otherwise, but for kind of this, you know, misspent childhood, you know, playing computer games and, and trying to learn how to use computers in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> how long did you end up spending with the Grizzlies, Alex? Three seasons. Three seasons. So I was uh, there for my junior and senior year of college at UBC, and then one more year, uh, and then I went to law school at Notre Dame. And why did you end up choosing law school to go to? So I absolutely loved my time with the Grizzlies, but it was you know a part-time game night opportunity, right? It wasn't a full-time job. It was just a you know come to the game. I think I want to get, I got there two, three hours prior to the game, get everything set up, get everyone organized, do the game, and then kind of reverse, you know, cleaning everything up, putting everything away, making sure all the files got sent to the league, et cetera. Um, so it was incredible fun, but that wasn't the full-time job. And there wasn't kind of a, an obvious path for that to turn into something greater. Um, and, you know, I felt at that point I had a, a Bachelor of Commerce from UBC which I very much enjoyed, good process, good school. Um, but I I guess I felt like, I always felt like graduate school was something that 
because I could do, I should do. It might sound a bit strange. Like I, I love college, right? Like I love school. And you know, I've, I've always jokingly said, if it weren't for the bankruptcy with the evidence you, I would have just stayed in school forever. Uh, like, <laughs> you should be I, Danish. I, yeah, I <laughs> grew up on the wrong continent. Uh, you did. I, no, I, I, I legit. I love education. I I love the education system. I love the educational process. Um, and I think I enjoyed that. And then when I had the year, you know, after graduate from UBC, doing the grizzly stuff, working some real retail jobs, um, it wasn't it wasn't it. Like it, this wasn't where I wanted to be. And I felt like you know pursuing a graduate degree, whether it was an MBA or, or a law degree, would both be something I would legitimately enjoy. Uh, but also open up some doors or, or some paths that I couldn't see then, right? Like, it, I, I can't ever pretend that there was some grand plan or some master plan. It was always like, this makes sense for me in the moment, and I think it'll lead to someplace good, and I have faith that it will. Alex, that's the beauty of hindsight, is that you can look back and make up a story and say, no, I was really smart. I knew that if I did a law degree, I was going to end up as the executive vice president of basketball operations for the Philadelphia 76ers. Yep. <laughs> Well, so the irony of this, and you asked early on about you know, the people that influenced me, like Tim Perrin, actually, uh, when I was in high school, one of his little pep talks was, you know, given my interest, like, you'll be the GM of a baseball team one day if you want to. And I just totally brushed it off. I'm like, that's insane. There's no way. I'm just some kid in Canada. Like, be serious now. Um, so in a lot of ways, like he saw this, you know, circuitous path to leading to this kind of destination I'm at now. But for sure, like it's super easy. And I think a lot of people do this where it's like you look back and you build a narrative in retrospect. Yes. Uh, and it's just not true, right? Like I, it was not true for me. I went to law school because I thought it would be really challenging. Uh, I thought it would be rewarding and fun. I had no idea what it would look like three years later when I got the degree. I need to meet, meet Tim Perrin so that he can predict what I'm going to be in the future. Um, so I'm going to ring him up after this interview. Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't imagine somebody like you, Alex, that went to first year of university, you went out to Western, you arrived a week early to go meet the basketball coach and try to be on the basketball team, involved with the basketball team, I, I should say. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine that you went to Notre Dame and then you didn't work in basketball at all. That's a fair assumption. So yeah, I <laughs> went there for law school and I did fairly similar uh you know th this was when email was starting to become a thing so it was possible to reach out so i had sort of you know pinged at the time the turns out the assistant to the head coach i didn't know that at the time but just i know an email <laughs> like hey you know I, you know worked in college worked for the grizzlies in a little bit you know i'd love to help out and so you know i went there for law school and you know reached out to him and it was interesting. I, I look back and rush back. So I ended up working for the men's basketball program for all three years. Uh, I helped out with the women's program my last year. And uh, it was fascinating because I had three head coaches in three years. I don't feel like I had anything to do with that. Uh, but, <laughs> so, you know, I had John McLeod, who was an ex NBA coach uh, my first year. And then Matt Doherty uh, was a rising assistant at university of Kansas, who was hired to be the head coach my second year. Uh, he got an opportunity with the University of North Carolina uh, at the end of my second year, uh, left for that job. And then we hired Mike Bray, who, who's actually been there since. And so it was for me as a kind of basketball thinker uh, slash, you know, would later do a little bit of coaching at, at the high school and kind of AAU level. Um, it was an incredible experience to kind of 
be exposed intimately to three very different uh, head coaches uh, running three very different programs. But yeah, so I, I was there for three years and my role changed a little bit with each coach. Um, you know, the, the first year was mostly kind of just supporting them with some video things and, you know, the team was on the road, making sure we recorded some games and getting those edited a little bit. Uh, just uh, not a ton, honestly. Like the first year of law school is, um, it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, yeah. To this day, I will say that, you know, my first semester of the first year of law school was the hardest thing I've done um, academically. And, and it, it was, it was a lot. Uh, it was very challenging. It was rewarding, but very, very, very challenging. So I didn't have a ton of time for other things, but my second and third year, I was much more involved. I helped them build a recruiting database just to help organize some of the things they were doing um, while getting a chance to spend a lot of time with the, the coaching staff, uh, going to practice, going to games, that sort of thing, and just kind of learning and growing uh, as a basketball thinker through that process. I'm really interested to look back retrospectively on people's lives and see these strings of continuity. So with you and your analytics and how that has been around from the age of six years old in some small capacity working on computers and, and how that mm -hmm. then transitioned to all of these other things. And I know we're going to go on to explore your analytics career in more detail in the near future or in the next coming minutes. But I'd be interested to know at this point, when you went into law school, did you kind of think that that was going to be your career? So. I mentioned earlier when when I went to law school, I didn't know what that would turn into. I, I think yes. So I think I assumed I would just be a lawyer, right? Like I, I would go through law school, I would, you know, get the degree, go to a state, pass the bar exam, and be a practicing attorney, right? If you'd asked me at age whatever it was, twenty twenty one, um, you know, what's the outcome of this going to be? I would have said that because that's what kind of everyone that goes to law school does, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't know that. And and once I had been there a couple of years, actually, I had an interview. Um, you kind of do job interviews prior to each summer in law school. So, you know, during your first year, you'll do interviews for kind of your summer internship after your first year. During your second year, you do inter interviews for your second year internship. And then you do interviews for like an actual job uh, during your third year. And during my third year, I actually interviewed with a law firm out in um, the West Coast in California, and the gentleman who was the attorney I interviewed with was connected to the basketball program, uh, which is part of why I got the interview. And we had lunch, and it was fascinating because at, at the end of this interview, where again, this is an interview for me with him about potentially becoming an attorney at his firm. And he tells me towards the end of the meal, Alex, you don't want to be a lawyer. You're not going to be a lawyer. I was like, well, this is pretty devastating news since I'm just completing a lot of it. And he sort of said, listen, I, like, I, I you know, seen you work with the basketball program, obviously, uh, and we've talked a bunch now, and, and that's what you're interested in. That's what your passion is. Uh, he says, but I have good news for you. You didn't just waste $100,000 on your law degree. Um, as long as you have a law degree, it, it affords you some credibility that you might not otherwise have, right? Like it's, people see it on your resume, and it's it's a good thing. It'll open up doors. It'll, you know, kind of give you a leg up in certain situations. So, you know, I left that interview and I remember being sort of taken aback because I was like, I'm going to get a job as a lawyer, right? And here's a guy that I respect being like, no, probably not. Um, <laughs> and, and and he wasn't saying I couldn't. He was just saying that that wasn't what I should do or, or should I, wasn't what I wanted to do. So I think by the time I left law school, you know, I, I went to California and I passed the bar exam. I did set myself up to potentially practice, but 
I think I definitely, by that point, knew it wasn't likely that I would spend the next 20 years as a practicing attorney. What was the primary reason, do you think? I, I think I've been fortunate enough to have opportunities to pursue passions and fulfillment. Um, like I, I'm acutely aware of the fact that I've been blessed throughout my life with you know, kind of opportunities and situations where I had different options or I had you know, a chance to do something really cool or really fun. And so I could make decisions on the basis of fulfillment and, and passion and feeling good and doing things I enjoyed doing. Um, and so because of that, and, you know, because yeah, I, I worked as a lawyer um, during law school, you know, during the summer or, you know, volunteering with the, the juvenile court as a public defender or, you know, at the district attorney's office in Orange County, California, like I had experiences as a lawyer and they were intellectually rewarding, but they weren't fulfilling. Like I didn't, some of those were close, as close as I could get, but by and large, I didn't feel like this is awesome, right? Like I, this isn't, I never felt like this is what I'm going to do for my life. Um, and the time I spent working in basketball, whether it was with the Grizzlies or with college programs, I really, really enjoyed that. And I really found that fulfilling. And, you know, because of the encouragement that I got in different points in my life, I felt like that could turn into something. Um, so even when I got out of law school, I didn't think that that was the destination. And there was a decision point somewhere where instead of saying, I want to try and focus on basketball, after you were a lawyer in California, you said, I want to go to the Navy. So can you speak about yep. that decision? Yep. Um, so th there were a few things at play there, right? Right. So one was that, you know, so I was a law clerk. So kind of the way it works is you graduate from law school in the spring and you do some bar review. Every state in the United States has its own bar, a bar association, a kind of a credentialing process for attorneys. And so I'd gone to California and spent, I don't remember, so like you know, two, four, six weeks doing bar review courses. Basically, hey, you spent three years studying the law in a generic sense. This is California law. These are the things you need to know to be an effective California attorney. And so you, you study a bunch of stuff there and you go through a class or you can go through a class um, to prepare for that. Then you do this bar exam and the bar exam, I want to say it was a two day thing um, and it was all written. And I remember actually at the end of the first day, you know, I was holding a pencil for holding a pencil and writing uh, for hours on end. And it's like, you know, you take the pencil out of your hand and there's this indentation in your finger uh, <laughs> where the pencil has been for a few hours. Like, this is not great. Um, yeah. So did the bar exam and then. You don't find out if you pass the bar. So I did the bar exam in July, um, and I didn't find out that I'd passed the bar until November, I want to say. Uh, oh, so wow. during that time, I was fortunate enough to work at the Orange County District Attorney's Office, uh, which, again, I, I'd i worked at a law firm at, when I was in law school, just as a typical attorney, a firm attorney. Um, and again, unless you're rewarding, but I didn't feel great about what I was doing. Uh, and then working at the DA's office was much closer to something that I would feel good about. Uh, in that you were kind of representing your community, um, you know, kind of on the law enforcement side, if you will, um, a chance to kind of, you know, do good, if you will. And, and it didn't, it was not nearly as lucrative as firm jobs, uh, but it was one that was more aligned with what I cared about. Um, so, you know, did that. And then um, it was good, but again, not great. And sort of two things happened at the same time. One was once I got settled into that clerk job uh, with the DA's office, 
it was a desk job, right? So I was at a desk for you know 40 hours a week, and you'd be in court for you know three four hours a week. But the vast vast majority of the time, you're at a desk working at a computer. And I just come from eight years of college where I was involved in basketball programs. So I was very active. I was used to, you know, playing basketball three, four times a week, being a practice another five, six times a week, being a games a couple times a week. Like I was very active doing a lot of things. And all of a sudden, bam, I'm sitting at a desk all week long. So I don't think I was ready for that. I'm not sure that I've ever been ready for that. But just that, <laughs> that, was, a kind of, that was kind of a shock to me, just to like my way of life. Um, and at the same time, as kind of this feeling of um, unease that I was living a life that wasn't what I was used to or what I wanted, what I wanted to do. Uh, and then 9-11 happened, which, you know, the, the attack on the, the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. And that was a, I think, you know, depending on when you live, you know, there's these kind of catalytic events that occur where you can look back and talk to my parents, like the JFK assassination. I think there's these events that affect a lot of people in a really profound way. And 9-11 was that for me um, in that like there was this horrible, tragic thing that had occurred and it was a very emotional thing, um, a very scary thing. And, you know, I, I looked around and I said, I've, you know, I've kind of led this blessed, privileged life. And, you know, what have I really done for the community? I've done a lot of stuff myself that I really enjoyed, but I felt like I had an obligation as a person to contribute to my greater community, to, to my country in that case. Um, and so in a lot of ways, 9-11 was kind of a call to service to me that I, that I felt it was important for me to contribute some part of my life to something that wasn't me. Um, and so, you know, I looked at the different branches of the armed, armed for different, different armed forces. Uh, I looked at the FBI as an option and the Navy was the one that kind of made the most sense to me at that time. So when I spoke to a recruiter, uh, you know, went through the kind of the, the application process and then was offered a, an opportunity to go to officer candidate school, OCS, uh, to become a naval officer and then a naval aviator. Um, and so I did that. And that was kind of the next 11 years of my life. Well, first and foremost, I think that I'm blown away by the sense of service and the sense of duty that you showed in that moment. I think that there was a lot of people, obviously, that witnessed 9-11, and I think there were very few people in your shoes that were so moved, and especially someone like you, Alex, who had a good career and who had already invested so much time in getting to that end state that to give it all up and to to dedicate your life to the Navy, that is, I think, truly remarkable. So uh, kudos don't mean too much from you, from me, sorry, but... Um, <laughs> That's uh, that's really remarkable. So I I very much admire that. Well, thank you. Why the Navy? Um, so my reasons for the Navy are much less uh, compelling than my reasons for service. <laughs> <laughs> you like the ocean? So, yeah. No, that that was honestly a huge part of it. Right? Was I, I I sat down and I looked at no joke. Like I think I might even pulled up the internet and said, you know, where are Navy bases? Where are Air Force bases? Where are Army bases? And you know, Navy bases are mostly on the coast. Um, you know, West Coast, East Coast, whatever. But I, I'd grown up in Vancouver, uh, you know, loved it. I'd spent a lot of time in Southern California, you know, LA, San Diego, loved those areas. Um, Notre Dame was an amazing experience as a college, but, you know, South Bend, Indiana, those weren't things that resonated with me. Um, so, you know, the fact that the Navy bases were all on the coast was definitely a huge selling point. Um, and at the time, I I was intrigued by the notion of flying. 
Um, so that, that definitely led me to focus on the Air Force and Navy more than the other uh, branches, the Marine Corps and the Army. And when I learned, it's interesting because I have different feelings about it now than I did at the time. But at the time, I sort of had, had talked to some people and done some research. And in the Navy, you're an officer first and a pilot second, meaning you go through training as an officer. You are a pilot. That's sort of your job. But you're always a leader. You're always responsible for leading men. And, you know, if you have orders that are two or three years and an next set of orders, next set of orders, they typically kind of alternate between flying and non-flying. Not exactly that, but close enough. Uh, and so you get to do different things. And I felt like that'd be kind of a more interesting, more challenging path to not, whereas in the Air Force, you, you learn to fly and that's your job. If you're a pilot, you fly this plane, this profile. And if you're a pilot, you're going to fly for the next 10 years, if you will. And so I felt like the chance to do some different things would kind of challenge me and be more rewarding and more aligned with, you know, the sort of things that I might enjoy doing. When you were a pilot in the Navy, was that primarily reconnaissance missions or like I'm quite a layman, so I don't really understand the Navy or the Army. So was it reconnaissance missions where you were searching for information or was it in battle versus other, I don't know, versus the Taliban, hypothetically? Sure. So I, I flew when you go kind of through pilot training, I think in both the Air Force and the Navy, uh, at some point in that process, they're like, OK, this is the platform you're going to fly. And so I went through, you know, kind of initial training and then was, you know, got to that point. And the, the plane that I got was the P-3 Orion, uh, which is historically an anti-submarine platform. Uh, so in the, you know, 80s, for instance, it spent a lot of its time, like during the Cold War, um, you know, identifying, tracking Russian submarines. And so the, the plane existed originally to fulfill that mission. Post-91, kind of, you know, post-Cold War, if you will, uh, the plane sort of adopted a more multi-mission role where it could it could do that as well, the anti-submarine mission, but also do, as you sort of alluded to, the you know overland and overwater reconnaissance. It's got a bunch of pretty cool sensors and uh, gear on the plane that lets you uh, see and listen and, and do some cool things uh, technically. Um, and so, you know, I didn't fly in combat, to your latter point. I mean, my, my deployments were to the uh, southeastern Pacific, so primarily based out of Japan, although I spent time in Korea, uh, a little bit of China, Australia, Singapore, uh, sort of that part of the world, uh, mostly working with, uh, you know, local militaries or kind of freedom of navigation, freedom of seas type missions. Um, but yeah, it, it's, again, it was sort of like the Navy in general, like it was a lot of different things, uh, but no, it wasn't kind of, you know, fighter plane, you know, combat helicopter type stuff in, in the Middle East. Right. You were making sure that ships could get into the South China Sea or something along yep. those lines. Yeah. Yeah. And you also mentioned that as an officer, you had a leadership role. Did you move into a leadership role in addition to the your aviation duties? Yeah. So, so again, in the Navy, as an example, I, you know, I go through officer candidate school and then I spent two, two and a half years in different flight schools. Uh, and, and when you're doing that, it's just like being in school, except you're learning a, a, a trade like flying an aircraft. So learned how to fly a single engine plane, then a twin engine plane. And I learned to fly the P3, which is a four engine plane. Um, and so the only job you have then is learning to do that thing. Um, so for two and a half years, I think it was, I just learned to fly. Then you go to an aviation command. So you're with a squadron. And when you're there, you're a pilot. So you have all, all those kind of flying things you have to do, both training and missions. Um, but you're also an officer and you also lead. So I want to say they kind of, Shuffle the deck a little bit every, you know, six to twelve months. 
but you know you have these prolonged periods i think it's closer to 12 months um where you know at first i was in charge of this group of, of enlisted men and you're, you're responsible for them as their officer and then later you get kind of larger or more you know kind of important too strong word but um uh-huh. more impactful groups and more significant groups um if you're successful and you move up, you get kind of more and more leadership opportunities just in terms of how does that, you know, squadron function. Um, so, yeah, it's at every step of my you know three years at the squadron um, during my first command, my first operational command, I had different leadership opportunities, uh, which, again, like it's while you're kind of doing this challenging, important, you know, pilot thing, uh, you're also, you know, leading men and women and. You know, helping them to contribute to the broader mission. Was there anything, Alex, that was really important that you learned within the Navy as you look back on your time there? Um, yeah, uh, so <laughs> it, it's, it, I, I think in a lot of ways that, like, you know, that'd be an entire podcast in and of itself. Yeah. Um, it, it's such a it's such a different thing, um, you know, kind of serving in the military. I think that you know you get exposed. It, it, in a lot of ways, it's like the, this you're exposed to a lot more in terms of like professionalism and leadership and those sorts of things. Like there, there's very clear standards, but there's also a, a wide range of stuff that happens. Um, so, you know, I've always said that during my you know 11 years in the Navy, I was exposed to the absolute best leaders I've ever encountered and the absolute worst leaders I've ever encountered. And I was exposed to the absolute best colleagues and, and teammates I've ever encountered and the absolute worst. So you know, like, you get exposed to so much and because you're, you know, changing jobs every six to 12 months, because you're changing stations every three years, sometimes two years, uh, you have to adapt. But, you know, if you've got your eyes open and your ears open, you can learn so much from all these different people. Um, so I think that that was, for me, the single biggest thing. Like, yeah, it's a cool backdrop and you're different parts of the world and that's neat. Uh, but I think just the exposure to so many different people from so many different backgrounds is just so enriching and just such an incredible opportunity to learn and grow um, about yourself, really. Continuing on this timeline, um, you moved from the Navy and somehow you ended up getting a job with the Raptors. Can you bridge that gap for us? Yeah, sure. So during my, so towards the end of my Naval career, um, my second to last duty station was the U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, in Annapolis, Maryland, where I had the opportunity to serve as a um, teacher of leadership um, in their leadership ethics and law department, uh, which was an incredible experience and also worthy of its own podcast, maybe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but when I was there, uh, because it's based in the U.S. and it's on the academic schedule, uh, I had a little bit of freedom to you know do the things I was excited to do, which like go to basketball games, and so. Uh, you know, I went to the uh, Las Vegas NBA Summer League, um, which happens every July, and it's gone back now, I think, you know, 15 years or so. I went to Summer League and ran into a gentleman that I'd known since high school, actually, Jay Triano, uh, who at that point had just become the head coach of the Toronto Raptors. Um, and so I ran into Jay, and, and, you know, he and I grabbed coffee, and we chatted and caught up, and, and I sort of told him, like, listen, you know, like, at, at that point, sort of the, the money ball stuff was in full swing. And there was an article in the New York Times about, you know, Shane Battier. Um, and he's a, he's a basketball player who had, you know, didn't put up big numbers, but, you know, had been assessed by some leading thinkers as being extraordinarily valuable. Uh, just 
there was a lot of work in what was you know kind of being called analytics and it was becoming more and more public and i, I grabbed jay and i was like hey there's a ton of really fascinating work like you should take advantage of this like it, it could help you as a coach uh, and so he went back to toronto uh connected with their general manager at the time brian colangelo and that led to sort of a, hey, why don't you come out here and show us what you're, you're talking about, what you're interested in doing. We really want to grow in this space. And so my last three years uh, when I was in the Navy, so one year at the Naval Academy and then two years when I was based in Japan, uh, I worked as a consultant uh, supporting both the front office and the coaching staff of the Raptors. Uh, and so that, that was sort of how I got back into the NBA, uh, basically just because I had a pre-existing relationship with a man who became a head coach fortuitous but you were also prepared for that opportunity i think and do you remember at that time when jay triano went back to brian colangelo and said hey we want to focus on analytics do you remember were other teams doing that at the time or was that kind of a unique perspective no i think that so th that was you know again late 2000s um and by that point i'd have to look it up i want to say Less than half of NBA teams had somebody with an analytics title, um, but it definitely wasn't none, right? I mean, by that point, right. you know, I'm, again, I, I'm guessing maybe eight to ten teams of the 30 had started growing an analytics element. Um, I don't think that anybody was, you know, particularly advanced in, in that respect. And I think it, it really was more like kind of the early adopter point, uh, kind of on an innovation curve, where you know a few more forward-thinking GMs. Uh, sort of were aware of this. We're like, hey, this is something I want to get ahead of the curve on and started investing in. And so we definitely weren't like, it wasn't the case that I was the first one or, or you know, the Raptors were the first one. I mean, Dean Oliver um, sort of is kind of the forefather of modern basketball analytics, uh, had written a book, had, you know, worked with the Seattle Sonics when they were in Seattle. Uh, so it was a thing that had happened a little bit here and there, uh, but I sort of got into the Raptors right before it started exploding uh, i think by the time of my third year there i want to say every nba team had somebody uh with the title at least so it was definitely in the early but exploding stage of kind of analytics within the basketball world do you remember looking back what kind of things you showed jay triano and brian colangelo to try and get them interested in this approach yeah so <laughs> The honest answer is that's all covered by non-disclosure. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> meaning, so no, no. So like when I when I showed, we kind of built a presentation. Uh, I, I enlisted the help of a gentleman, Keith Boyarski, who actually uh, worked with me there, uh, and then you know earned an opportunity to become. I think now he's the vice president of strategy for the team for the Raptors. So he's amazing. Has done great and, and was an incredible teammate for me uh, during my time with the Raptors. But. Um, he and I kind of sat down and said, you know, hey, you know, given the state of data that exists in, in basketball, what sort of insights could we give them? Um, and just, you know, as an easy example, you know, you know, you can look at rebounding. And like, I think that, you know, traditionally they track offensive rebounds and defensive rebounds, which are like successes, right? So opposing, opposing team takes a shot. If you're on defense and you get the ball, you got a defensive rebound. Um, and coaches all know that's only part of the story, right? Like if you talk to any traditional basketball coach, the other team takes a shot, what's important? None of them will say, get the rebound, right? They'll say, you got to box out. You got to get your man. You got to own some space. Like 
there's all these things they speak to, and there's a lot of truth in there, right? So they knew that, as an example, defensive rebounds was a incomplete number. It told you some part of what you cared about. Um, and we believe that using existing data, you could answer more of that question. You could get better insight into, okay, well, when this guy's on the court, how often does his man get an offensive rebound? Like, that's one element of it. How often does anyone on the other team get an offensive rebound? When you're on the court, how often does your team get the ball? Not necessarily you, but someone on your team. So there were a few different lenses you could use, and then you could kind of combine those in an elegant way to say, hey, you know, I get what defensive rebound says. Here's a little additional insight that might be a little more accurate. It might might give you an answer closer to what you think the answer should be in terms of how you would define what's important. Um, so I think it was just, you know, I'd summarize that by saying using existing data to better answer the questions they already had. So just to summarize that, pre-analytics, what was happening is that the data was very binary, where somebody had 20 points and 10 rebounds, and that was great. But now you're adding an additional layer that says, well, he had 20 points and 10 rebounds, but when he was on the court, uh, the other team actually got more offensive rebounds, for example, than compared to a league average. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah. I think that on, on both of those things, right, like the, the 20 points in, in a vacuum, 20 points is good. Like that's scoring 20 points in an NBA game. That's an accomplishment. That's that's a very positive thing. But when you go to the next layer, if 30 people got, got 20 points in a game, not all 20 points are created equal, right? Like if this one guy gets 20 points on, you know, 8 of 10 shooting with a bunch of free throws, that's one thing. Another guy gets 20 points shooting, you know, 10 of 27 from the floor. That's probably not (laughs) great. Very different. Um, So on a box score, if you just look at the, you know, in a traditional, you know, newspaper to date myself, you need to see points, rebounds, assists. And it's like, okay, points, rebounds, assists, fouls sometimes. Um, So you 20 points and they're like, oh, that's good. And then, you know, you go one layer deeper and it's like, oh, it might be good. It might be great. It might be bad. Same thing on the rebounds. Like 10 rebounds is good. But, you know, if the guy got... 10 rebounds and it was three offensive, seven defensive rebounds. And then you discovered that the guy he was matched up with got, you know, six offensive rebounds. Well, and as an example, coaches were doing this already, right? Like they'd go back and study the tape and they'd see, you know, let's focus on rebounding and oh, our center, he got seven defensive boards, which is good. But the guy that he was dealing with got around him half the time, got six offensive rebounds. Like that was a really bad rebounding performance. And so, right. you know, a casual fan would say, I oh, got the boards. Um, but kind of one layer deeper is, well, he didn't actually help us in that aspect of the game. And with the wraps, did you guys see some pretty impressive results with using analytics or can you speak to that? Um, so I can't speak to it directly. Uh, you know, what I will say is, you know, if you look at kind of the period that I was there, you know, sort of the, the people that we, that came to the team, whether it was you know, Damar or Kyle Lowry or, you know, Jonas Vanchunas, you know, those were the guys that turned into kind of the pillars of a team that became a perennial 50 win team under Dwayne Casey and then last year Nick Nurse. Um, that was a, you know, a very good basketball program for quite a long time. Um, and so, and, and let's be clear, that was for sure not me, right? Like, it, <laughs> it, it was funny because people would ask whether it was 10 years ago or five minutes ago, you know, how much impact do you have on this, that, the other? Uh, and the reality is there's always a key decision maker and your job is to, as best you can provide that person with, you know, insight and recommendation. Ultimately, you don't know why, right? Like I've always told people, 
if I told, if I recommend to my wife, hey, I think you should purchase this car. You know, this is the right car for you. And then she goes and checks out three, four different cars and buys the car that I recommend. They, you know, if you and I are talking now, I don't know why she chose that car. Was it because I recommended it? Was it because independently she learned some other things that made sense for her about that vehicle? Like decisions were really complex things. Um, and so, you know, I look back, I care a lot about what insight did I gain? How did I convey that to others? Um, but in terms of like, you know, what sort of results did we get from analytics? Uh, I'm not sure, right? I, I think it was positive. I think that, you know, that I look at, I look back and thought oh, that was a really good thing. Or I think that worked out really well. Um, but, you know, at some level, you never really know. Yeah. What you're speaking to maybe is about the system one and system two, Daniel Kahneman, who's um, a world-renowned psychologist, economist, and he speaks a lot about the system one and system two. The system one is very reactive, right? Like maybe your wife, Nicole, went out and um, bought the car because she uh, just had a gut feeling that this was the right car. Or maybe it was a system two thing where it was more deliberative and it, it was more um, in-depth yep. and, and she went out and researched, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So you eventually moved over, Alex, to Philadelphia, and you moved into a management role. I'd be interested to know if you can talk about that transition from more of a technician, technologist, as an analytics guy, to managing people. So I'd be interested to know if you could talk about maybe some of the skills gaps that you had and what you went about doing to close those skill gaps. Yeah, for sure. So I think you you characterize it fairly in the sense that uh, when I worked in Toronto, um, my job was to, you know, look at all the evidence, look at all the data, look at all the information, try to gain insight from that and use that to help inform decisions, whether it was coaching decisions or management decisions. They would say, these are the sorts of questions we have. Help us out. You know, what about, you know, as we look at these draft prospects, as we look at these trade targets, as we look at these guys on our roster, um, help us using information, using data to better understand those. And so my job then was sort of, finding insight or, you know, even more broadly, what's the truth? Like finding a better truth, finding something that's more accurate. Um, and so your, your job, if you will, my job was to, you know, discuss and debate with my colleagues and stare at data and try to make sense of it. But ultimately it was like, I'm trying to find an answer. Um, and when you transition to a leadership role, uh, you don't like a, at first, it was very strange for me because I defined work a certain way. Like I defined work as like production. It's like, what am I producing? What am I creating? What am I giving? Um, and when you, you know, end up in a more clear leadership role, it's much less obvious, right? Like I, I'm no longer at my computer doing things. I'm no longer making things. I no longer have, you know, all these beautiful charts and displays. And I just, those things happen very rarely now. Uh, vast, vast, vast majority of my time is spent talking to people and then working, collaborating with people and empowering people and you know, hiring people. <laughs> so it's it's become much more human um, and, it, and it's very much a leadership role, not a doing role. I mean, there's clearly some overlap, but uh, I was really, really, really lucky as I alluded to, like my 11 years in the Navy uh, put me in a lot of situations where I was leading people and leading different groups of people. So that wasn't in any way daunting um but i think that any different group you're leading is a different and unique challenge and so you know the skill gaps were much more kind of learning things outside of my kind of bubble if you will like i'd I'd been very very focused on again evidence-based analysis um that had been kind of my 
focus for the during my time in Toronto. And now uh, I was, I'm responsible for a much broader array of things, right? It's not not just in charge of the you know research and development and the technical stuff. Uh, I bear some responsibility for our player development and our scouting and our minor league program uh, and kind of operations in general in terms of just you know supporting this basketball program and making sure that we have food and buses and you know all those <laughs> things go along with just you know making sure things happen when they're supposed to happen. Uh, so you know it's a much broader and more diverse array of things that no one person can have expertise in, right? So I, I have some expertise in some areas, but most of it is working with people who are experts and making sure that they have what they need to succeed so that they can support our program, right? I mean, here, you know, with the Sixers and Basketball Ops, every single person that works here has a fundamental responsibility, and that is supporting our basketball program. At the end of the day, there's these, you know, 17 men, um, athletes, who define whether we're successful or failure. So in turn, our jobs are, to what extent are you supporting them as a program? How have you made them better able to excel on the court? They're all amazing and talented athletes. Um, and it's kind of our burden is to support them. So my job in transitioning from kind of a technical role to a leadership role is ensuring that, you know, 70, 80 people uh, are focused and best able to do that. So Alex, if you had to pick one thing that was the number one hardest thing for you to transition from a technician, and even though you'd managed people in the past in the military or in the Navy, I should say, within basketball, what was that number one hardest thing for you to learn? Yeah, so I think that, you know, coming from the military again, which is this really diverse um, group of people from a bunch of different walks of life and different perspectives, different experiences, different backgrounds and educations uh, when you come into sports like pro sports is a profoundly traditional endeavor and institution and so i don't think i was fully prepared for sort of the you know kind of resistance to change and resistance to innovation uh that and maybe it's normal across all companies i'm not sure i've only really done kind of the military and, and the mba but i think that that, that that resistance and that entrenchment against different ideas was not one that I had encountered previously, or at least not to this extent. So how did you manage that? I, I think for me, a lot of it was just the kind of the EI component, right? Which is, at first, I was taken aback that, you know, you'd encounter these staffers, you know, where there's, again, this has been, frankly, even in college, I experienced it, they didn't impact me as much with the college basketball programs. But I think that people in sports, tend to kind of find a niche, find a thing that, you know, they're comfortable with and they do. And at first I was like, well, this isn't like the whole, like the, the, it's, this is the way you've always done it, right? Like that, that kind of approach. Um, and my whole life, it's been about, you know, how do you find a better way to do things? And so at first I was a bit taken aback, but then I realized that, you know, kind of the, the way to affect change is to understand, right? So it's, you know, connecting with that person, understanding why they think the way they do, um, helping to find kind of like, hey, this would be better for you if, you know, if this was a quicker process or a better process or an easier process. Um, just trying to understand those barriers to progress, barriers to change, barriers to innovation, because it's in the military, I suppose, then you can just go through them if you need to uh, in a leadership role. Whereas in the real world, like, I guess maybe that's an option. I just don't think it's a good option most of the time. Like, to say, we're just doing it because I said so. Like that, 
it's not good parenting. It's not good leadership. I guess that it's an option. It's just not a healthy one. Um, so I think that really doubling down again on the human element of, okay, help me understand why, right? Because I, it, until you get to the why, the what is not super important. Yeah, us as human beings love stories. Yep. And, and that's where the why comes from. And I think it's also a little bit ironic that the analytics guy had to focus on emotional intelligence. <laughs> yep. There's got to be some irony in there somewhere. Well, I mean, it's interesting because even with respect to that, like I would say that in my first you know, year or two with the Raptors, kind of my first experience in this in like a, a really formal way, um, that was a lesson that you know, I got very, very early on, right? Which was it's as much as I was focused on finding the insight and finding a better answer, um, I realized very quickly that wasn't like my effectiveness as a professional had very little to do with how brilliant my thing was, right? My effectiveness as a professional was how effectively can I communicate this? How effectively can I get buy-in from key stakeholders, right? Like if the assistant coaches feel very strongly about this, I need to understand, doesn't saying, no, no, that's wrong. Here's the right answer. That's super unhelpful. You'll, you'll never get anywhere with that, right? It's much more help me to understand why and like that perspective in a micro sense. Like, so you don't think you think rebounds are important because of this. Okay, great. Help me to understand why. And so kind of getting on their level of understanding, that's the real path to effectiveness, right? It's being able to support them in the way they want to be supported, not the way you think they should be supported. And that probably goes back to the diversity of individuals as well that you, you may have learned at, it, within the Navy. Yep. Well, Alex, I had the, obviously the opportunity to, you invited me down and uh, to come visit you guys and, and see the facilities and uh, a huge congratulations to you on this promotion, even though it was 18 months ago, you guys have gone on to do some really incredible things. They're led by Elton Brand and, and you and in the executive vice president of basketball operations role. So for those of our listeners that don't know, during the 2015-2016 season, and Alex, correct me where I'm wrong here, but the Sixers, I believe, had a record of 10 and 72. And and this reorganization happens, and then Elton and, and you come in, and, and this was actually their second worst season in history, in their history. And so last year, the 76ers went 51 and 31. They actually went to this conference semifinals, they lost to the Toronto Raptors, unfortunately, who were the eventual champions. So you had some really incredible success with the 76ers, Alex. And um, do you know, does that mean that there's more teams out there that are now investing more heavily in analytics? Or is that something that is kind of kept in-house? Um, so I think that, so I guess, first of all, I'll say that the word analytics in a lot of ways has sort of lost meaning in the public discourse. Um, yeah. Like I don't. I think that people think analytics is, you know, some bunch of computer dorks sitting at computers, you know, scheming about the best way to, to, to play the game. Um, when, you know, I would say that that that's not it. <laughs> uh, I think that, you know, the world has gotten kind of smarter and more sophisticated and more complex and the information available to us is all of those things, uh, more complex, especially deeper, more robust, the whole big data thing. Um, and I would say that at every point in time, whether it's 20 years ago, 10 years ago, now in 10 years, at the end of the day, basketball and management is about making decisions and those decisions are based on something right? like, unless you're going for a straight, like, you know, I guess the like Joker from the dark Knight, um, unless you're just a straight anarchist based on chaos, 
in life, we make decisions. The decisions are based on evidence. They're based on something, whether it was your experiences, your intuition, based on data, whatever, you're making decisions. And so I think that more and more you're seeing organizations across all industries um, making decisions that are more and more informed by as objective as you can um, data, evidence. So I think that's not anything unique to us. I think that every organization is uh, wrestling with that and how best to do that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that in terms of like the analytics piece in particular, I think you know, baseball is, has been a great sort of model for a lot of us. Um, basketball's changed a lot in the last 10, 15 years and will continue to change. I think that most sports have changed and will continue to change. Uh, and it's not changing because of analytics. It's changing because they're ultra competitive and trying to get an edge and trying to win. And if you can eke out a little competitive edge here, you're, you're going to go ahead and do that. So if all these teams are, they're obviously competing, they're trying to get an edge, just like each individual athlete is trying to get an edge. Looking toward the future, where are those edges? Yeah, so I mean, you, you hit on it right there, which is the, the individual athletes, right? I mean, we're, we're dealing with the absolute best basketball players in the world. And, you know, their, their commitment to that, to being better, to being just a little bit better, and, and it's that, right? I mean, I think that the team stuff is what it is, but at the individual level, like the advancements in you know, sports science and, and performance science, um, sleep, nutrition, diet, you know, those are all areas that I think that the, that the scientific community has advanced a lot over our lifetimes, over the last few decades. And we're starting to see that kind of implementation and acceleration within the pro sports world, uh, where, you know, again, <laughs> we just joke about like, you know, the, the Babe Ruth stuff back in the 50s where, you know, guys would play and go out party and, you know, play and party, like that whole thing. And that's not what happens. Uh, now you've got this incredible focus and, you know, these, these players are almost their own corporations now in terms of just the, the amount of time, effort, and energy that gets invested in their exceptionalism, um, again, across all those fields. So it's the, the on-court work, the skill work is super important. And we invest in that the way I assume every team does. But I think the other stuff, again, kind of the, the, the science, the sleep, the diet, the nutrition, the, the tools that are being created to support those things, uh, it's really, really exciting. Um, and I think that's sort of the, the improved understanding of the human body and how that can excel and be optimized. I think that's really the next frontier, if you will, um, in sports. And do you think that that research is already being done by academics or is that something that the sports community is going to have to invest in themselves? Um, no, I, I think that like these things are going to come from, you know, kind of either the corporate community or the educational community just by virtual resources, right? Like if, if you look at something, I was talking actually to a neurologist a few months ago and he was sort of sharing with me that, you know, humans, like we don't understand the human brain that well, right? Like we, you know, we have, you know, now centuries of medical science, if you will, and, you know, kind of the most essential element of humanity, the, <laughs> our brains, how we function, how we think, how we live, uh, those, that's not something that we understand all that well. And so when we start talking about, you know, sleep physiology or things like that, um, you know, how much of that do we fully understand? I'm not sure. Certainly I'm not an expert at all. Uh, but, you know, as we talk to these experts and, and kind of get their guidance it's like you should do more of this and less of this um i don't think that's and maybe i'm wrong maybe there's a, a scale of investment that would make sense but i think a lot of it is 
kind of allowing this understanding to grow in, in the scientific academic community and corporate community, I suppose, uh, and then finding out how can this be thoughtfully applied to our basketball program, right? Because it's th- those, these things I'm talking about are like huge macro questions about humans and humanity and how do people function. And the problem that I'm dealing with is, or not problem, like the, the challenge is how do we optimize against 17 exceptional young athletes? And I'm just trying to figure out how I can stop myself from eating the ice cream in the freezer. Same. So we're Same. all we're all fighting a different problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that focus on I don't want to say routines, but on things like sleep and hydration and nutrition. I I know from our own group at Strive that a lot of our success and a lot of how we feel in the group as individuals, as entrepreneurs is about, did I get my seven and a half hours of sleep? And did I wake up and have a glass of water? And did I meditate? And those are kind of the things that matter more than sometimes circumstances or uh, internal circumstances, external circumstances, et cetera. Before Alex, we turn to you as a person, I want to finish off with a couple of rapid fire questions. So if you only had two hours a week, to focus on the 76ers, what would you focus on? Listening to my colleagues, um, I think that the thing that I've focused most on in the last couple of years has been listening. Um, again, it's part of the transition from having good ideas to better understanding your colleagues and empowering them and supporting them. So if all I had was two hours a week, I would you know, spend an hour and 58 minutes. Two minutes would be answering the questions I have to answer. Um, but an hour and 58 would be... <laughs> sitting down with, you know, the, the, the exceptionally talented and bright and motivated uh, executives and directors I have working with me and just hearing what they had to say about what's going on and how can I support them. I think there's an Abraham Lincoln quote about that, about having an hour and then using 55 minutes to sharpen an ax. Yep. <laughs> no, but we won't go into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Outside of players in Philadelphia, who are your three favorite athletes, past or present, and why? So... Yeah, it's tough for me to answer that because I shouldn't really talk about basketball players. <laughs> Which, Out, let's say outside of basketball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so outside of basketball, uh, well, actually, no, I'll, I'll, I'll screw this. Outside of the NBA. Elena um, Deladon, the you know player for the Washington Mystics in the WNBA, they, they just won the title. Um, kind of her, her life history is just so fascinating to me. And then to have just won the NBA championship while dealing with you know serious back injury is just so inspirational to see her go out in, in, in the final game of, of that series. And I want to say she played like 36, 37 minutes, uh, wow. which, you know, while struggling with a serious back injury, like that's just amazing. Oh. And I was just in such awe of kind of her toughness. <laughs> uh, that was pretty amazing. And she's someone that just, you know, as I want to say, she's like six, five. So, you know, she's, you know, one of the bigger players, but an incredible shooter, very skilled, just such a complete basketball player. Um, so that's pretty cool. And, I'll, I'll cheat a bit on the next one. Um, you know, Pep Guardiola, uh, part of it is my whole life I've admired thinkers as much as I've admired the athletes. So people that are great at their craft in sport, that's always been really fascinating to me. So, you know, Pep Guardiola, just for context, is the manager of the uh, Manchester City uh, Football Club in, in England. And, and prior to then, he managed Bayern Munich. And prior to that, uh, Barcelona. So he's, I think, won championships in the three top leagues in Europe. Um, just wow. And they're all, you know, each of the, the soccer leagues in Europe are kind of very different in terms of 
what drives success within them. Um, so sort of his trajectory and just being both innovative and effective in wildly different environments has always been just fascinating to me. Um, so yeah, and then a third, I mean, I, I alluded to it and, it and it's sort of cheating, but um, Elton Brand, like it, I actually legitimately did admire him as a player, uh, as a fan, and then now to have the opportunity to work with him and under him. Um, I will say that, you know, you don't, watching guys play basketball is one thing, like you, you learn about whether they're good at basketball, but I'm not sure how much more beyond that you get uh, just as, as a viewer and having had the opportunity to work with him now for several years. I mean, just he's an incredibly bright, perceptive person. And uh, like I've, I've in some ways dedicated a huge chunk of my life to kind of understanding this game and being able to contribute and being able to work with people in, in a positive way and just not joking every single day I learn from him um, just because of who he is and how he approaches things. Uh, it's just it's just such a blessing. So I'll go with those three. I think, like you said, us fans are, it's impossible to judge a player to say, that's a nice person, that's not a nice person. But I still always felt like Elton Brand was a nice person. <laughs> so I'm glad that that's confirmed. Yeah. <laughs> and looking back at yourself, Alex, at 22, you're exiting university or 21, whatever it was. What piece of advice would you tell yourself? Oh, my. Um <laughs> So it, it's I, I think at every stage of my life I've looked back and been like, what was I thinking? Like just and so at 22, I mean I think I feel like society I feel like we define ourselves through our opinions way too much. I think society encourages us to do that where like you know you adopt these opinions and these beliefs because that's how you are kind of creating your identity. And I think there's a compulsion where you're young to do that way more than kind of the situation calls for. Um, like I felt like I always wanted to have answers, have opinions, have views. And I wasn't, I don't think I was comfortable with not having answers with, you know, accepting that things are more nebulous. Like I wanted, I wanted to push everything to be black or white without acknowledging that there's a ton of gray and, and like, that's okay. So I've gotten, much more comfortable with discomfort, <laughs> uh, hmm. with not knowing, with, you know, when somebody voices a view that you don't agree with, like, well, why do you think that? And thinking about it yourself and sort of, there, there's, there's rarely a capital T truth, right? It's just trying to generate a better understanding. And, and I don't think any one person can do that. Like, the world keeps evolving, it keeps changing. So if you're not kind of exploring and asking and, and, and observing. I don't know that you can get there with the world. That's why I'm totally opinionless. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm Canadian, so I don't take a side on anything. You know, I'm a, very much a fence sitter, yeah. Alex. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you're, yeah. you're, you're abiding by my life wisdom, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to learn from you here. I want to turn to you, Alex, now as a person. And I have been a fan of yours for many years, and I've been very much blown away by the level of success that you've had, but your drive and the difference that you've made in this world. So I just want to get a sense from you. Do you know where this drive comes from? Um, no is the real answer. Um, it, my, it's like my passion, it comes from my passion for sports, I think, right? And, and it's interesting because my parents are not sports people at all. Like, neither my mother nor my father is interested in sports in the slightest bit. They never watched anything growing up. Um, 
So it was this very organic thing that just kind of occurred in me uh, when I was younger. And so I think that a lot of ways it was that, like it's sports teaches you over and over again that, you know, you can win, right? If, if you do the right things, whatever that is, you can win. And, you know, then different, when you get to the team thing, like different people contribute different things and everyone has an opportunity to contribute to this greater good. And so just sort of believing that there was an opportunity to contribute positively um, and then experiencing that at different points in my life, I think really, like, yeah, it's, it's that. It's a fundamental belief that I can contribute to, to our success. I've always seen you as someone that is really mentally strong, that doesn't get discouraged very easily. And from an outside perspective, you've always seemed to face those challenges with resilience. So I'm hoping that you can speak about your resilience. How have you developed it? And how can other people develop it for themselves? So, and again, it, I think there are probably people that are like, so I, I, I appreciate your characterization of me. Um, it's very complimentary. <laughs> I, I guess I, if I'm resilient, it's because I've failed a lot, I think, right? Like, I don't know that anyone comes out of the womb, like just resilient, right? I, I think that we're a function of, you know, certainly some DNA, some genetics, but a lot of it is like experience. And again, to kind of go back to the, to the sports as, as a, you know, kind of mirror of real life, uh, you know, sports, if you're involved in sports, you fail all the time, right? Maybe not all the time, all the time, but it's impossible to involve in sports and not suffer failure, right? Like when you're playing in some little league baseball team or, or you know, really in, like in college at some rec league, it doesn't matter. There's always going to be, eight teams, 10 teams, 30 teams, and there's only one winner, right? So the vast majority of the time, you will ultimately experience failure. And so sports in some ways gives you this rich canvas of failure, and, and it's up to you to figure out what that means or and some people to stop playing. Like, I'm just not going to participate. Uh, other people try to figure out how to do better the next time. And so I think that, you know, resilience is a function of, we're all, like, it's an acknowledgement we're all going to fail. And we're going to continue to fail what defines us is like, what do you do about that? And do you re-engage? Do you, do you find a way to get better? Like, or do you not? Do you blame everyone else? I, I just, for me, again, I'm fortunate that sports has given me that kind of canvas for failure. And yeah. And I think you're someone that has put yourself out there behind ideas a lot in your life. For example, with analytics, talking to Jay Triano, that took courage and and that's just obviously one tiny example in a lifetime of those kind of examples and i i know from my own life alex and obviously a much smaller context but as i start down this path of entrepreneurship and trying to create something for myself i know that every single day i am uncomfortable and i have the choice every day do i want to continue with this and it's hard because failure is difficult running into walls is difficult not achieving things as quickly as you'd like to is difficult. And I've noticed in myself that going through this process has allowed me to, as soon as it's done once, it becomes easier. And so I think that if you put yourself out there once, take a step forward, that you're able to push past more things. And so I think that's kind of the sentiment that you're expressing. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Failure sucks. Like, there's no part of failure that's fun, right? Like, it's not a good no. part, right? But you always have the choice, right? And, and a lot of people choose not to, it's like, you can choose to do it. You can choose to put yourself out there. You can choose to risk failure, 
the, the only way you ever succeed is to risk failure, right? Like there, there's no path that I'm aware of where you just succeed, 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 succeed. Like, I don't know what that is or what that looks like or who's done that. Um, so you, you can choose to be open to failure. And, and again, failure sucks. Like it's, it's not pleasant. You feel bad. Um, but you know, like I'm involved with the basketball program and, you know, last year we won 50 games and lost 30 games. And, you know, that means 50 times I felt good and 30 times it was horrible. Um, <laughs> like, so I've been, I've invited that. Right. And, you know, in my professional capacity, it's the same thing. I mean, you have to engage with people and engage with ideas and, and try to be great and try to be better. And, you know, that process involves lots of stumbling. Um, and when you stumble, your knees get scraped and you can choose to get up or you can just sit down and like, those are choices. Yeah. Failure sucks. And it makes me eat more ice cream. <laughs> we covered that earlier. Yeah. Uh, we've cut, and we've, this is, a, it's, this podcast is about ice cream primarily. <laughs> I think that, uh, it's an interesting sentiment and, and something that I've discussed on a previous podcast with a guy named Connor Melander, who's a founder of a band called Half Moon Run. And, and they're currently touring uh, internationally in Europe and, and they're fairly well known in, in the indie rock space. And, our discussion in part touched on how to find a meaningful life. And we both kind of came to the conclusion that a big part of creating meaning in your life is actually overcoming struggle. So if you just succeed, 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 yeah, it's great. But over time, I think that us as human beings have this inherent desire to kind of face some, I don't want to say disaster, but some kind of challenge that we need to step up and overcome. Yeah, for sure. No, it's interesting because, when I look back, kind of the way, way back, well, you know, when you're in college and you know, it's like, these are the core courses you have to take. And then you have these choices and it's like, you have to take one of these four or one of these six or one from this group. And I remember, you know, sitting with, you know, friends at the point and it's like, so there's these three econometrics courses. There's a really hard one and an average one and an easy one. And, you know, to your point, the hard one is the one that will have the most rewards if you do it well. Right. So it's like, you can choose to embrace a challenge and you're much more likely to fail. But if you succeed, it's just so much more worthwhile. And I was the guy that took vampire studies. So I don't know what that says about me. I mean, as long as it didn't take away from the ice cream, you're fine, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And back to the ice cream. <laughs> um, so that leads perfectly into my next question, Alex, about ice cream. No, that's a joke. Do you, Alex, have any specific routines that allow you to get more done or that maybe you think contribute to your triumphs? Yeah, so, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, for a variety of reasons, I think I'm very ritualized. Um, you know, like I, and I used to kind of want, like ritualized meaning have the same breakfast every day and, and eat at the same time and, you know, get up and the routine is, you know, shower and breakfast and get, you know, sorry, shower, get dressed, breakfast, go to wherever, and like, <laughs> It's a very comforting routine that you get into and kind of now in my old age, if you will, um, I look back on that at the why and it's like, it relates back to just performance, right? Like now I'm focused on it from an athletic perspective, but I think I intuitively recognized at a young age that like, as long as I got my sleep and, you know, got my breakfast and, you know, went about things in like a very consistent way, I was comfortable. Like I felt good. My mind was ready. And I could kind of embrace the challenges the world has. Like you're capable of like, being your best, if you will. And I knew that if I didn't get enough sleep or I, you know, was running behind schedule and was rushed out of the house and skipped breakfast, like I knew that those things would impact my ability to be good. Right. I, I don't know how good I am, but I'm quite certain that I can make it myself worse by making, you know, different choices. So for sure, for me, 
it's always been super important to, you know, get my sleep, to get my breakfast, like those sorts of things matter a lot to me. Um, and I know that in the last few years, there have been times where, you know, there's a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, and I haven't been as diligent at, you know, things that I would characterize as self-care, um, you know, kind of that, that work-life balance got out of whack. And I know for sure that in those moments, I was not as effective. I was not as good at my job when I wasn't doing things I needed to, to make sure that I was capable of being good at my job, if that makes sense. Totally. Do you have a quote, Alex, right now that resonates with you and why? Um, actually, yes. <laughs> I, I saw a thing online, actually, it was like a week ago. Um, I think it was a Babe Ruth quote, but something like, uh, it's hard to beat a person who never gives up. And it kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier about kind of resiliency and learning through adversity. Like on the one hand, so much of what we do is like these little things, right? Like I succeeded or failed at this thing right here and this thing right there. Uh, And I think part of what drives some people to be more resilient is like just the whole taking the long view. And this is all like, these are all little chapters in a really long book. And so the goal isn't to win all the chapters. The goal is to have an awesome conclusion to that book. And so, you know, for me, the, the Babe Ruth quote about, you know, hard to beat someone who never gives up relates to as long as you keep pushing and keep trying to do better and keep trying to succeed, like, it's hard not to eventually get there, I think, right? Like, and, and we, you and I have both seen this in sports where there are times where a team gets way down in a game and they just give up, right? And, and even though it's not, it's over, right? Even though there's still a quarter to go or still three innings to go, you know that they're done, Um and like, I, I don't want that to ever be me, right? And, and I don't think anyone should ever aspire to that. And so like just the desire to fight, the desire to push, no matter what, like that to me means so much. Is that a conscious decision for you that you're not going to give up? Is that something you've told yourself or is that just something that has inherently happened for you? Oh, no, it's, it's a choice every single day. Right? I think that it, to your point, it gets easier when you make the choice a lot of times. Um, and I think it's easier when you've sort of thought ahead of time about what it will look like, you know, both ways. Um, so like, I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to do this thing. If it works out, this is what it looks like and feel like. If it doesn't, this will look like and feel like. But I think that whether it's a big thing or a little thing, like whether it's, you know, taking this job or, you know, making a decision to um, not, you know, to skip a conference call, you know, some colleagues and instead go to your son's basketball game, like, I think that those choices, they're all choices, right? Like, I I think that we have tremendous agency in our own lives. And for sure, luck has a lot to do with, you know, things that happen in life and and there's things you can't control. But I think there's way more that you can control than things you can't control. And so I do think that, you know, the the decision to put yourself out there, it does get easier, but it's a choice you literally have to make every single time. Speaking about decisions, how would you recommend that we improve our decision-making abilities? So I think we talk here internally with the Sixers, like post-mortems matter a lot, right? It's, it's the way to learn from the decisions you've made when they don't work out is to really fully understand, okay, so why did you make that decision? What were the things that played into it? What were you thinking at that point? You know, because here we're going to have this whole trust the process thing, right? Like we care more about process than outcomes. And I think that's right, but outcomes are how we get judged. And so when these catalytic outcomes occur, uh, you mentioned that we lost in the second round of the playoffs to the, the Toronto Raptors last year. 
and we lost in game seven uh, on a shot by Kawhi Leonard that bounced four times and went in. Um, and, you know, yeah. it's in, in some ways that that was a microcosm of sports and that, you know, it's, it's game seven of an intensely competitive series and we lose on a thing that takes a few seconds. Um, so, you know, a lifetime of work by so many people or, you know, months of work, depending on how everyone characterizes it. And, and it's all defined by that one moment. And so, you know, it's easy to look at that moment and say, oh, you know, he just hit a great shot. Or, hey, if we'd just done this different, differently or that differently, that would have been different. For me, it's like, you know, a step back and let's look at the whole series and look at the whole playoffs and look at the whole season. You know, what happened and why and really try to wrestle with all of it and to better understand. So, you know, again, long wind up. I think that failure is inevitable, but it's definitely not inevitable that you get back in the game, which we talked about, nor is it inevitable that you'll think about why and really try to understand that and try to, again, do better the next time, right? And I, I don't think you can do better the next time if you don't understand why the other thing happened. Alex, I don't know if this is going to resonate with you, but one of the most, the most impactful thing that I've done in the last 18 months or so was uh, my hero is a guy named Ray Dalio. I pretty much bring him up on every episode, but he argues that you need to live a life of principle. And as a part of that, what he argues is that every time you fail, every time you don't achieve a goal, um, every time you make a mistake or there's a character flaw in you that leads to some bad decision, it's really important that you reflect on that mistake and then come up with a principle that if you implemented it, you wouldn't make that same mistake again. And so I've been doing this process where I've been codifying those mistakes. I've got about 100 um, maybe 120 at this point of these mistakes and then principles that I can then implement in my life and live by. And what's really interesting about that is you start to see areas in your life where I have for myself, I should say, I've seen areas in my life where I make consistent mistakes in a certain area because let's say I'm not, I don't have enough resilience. And so now I'm able to come up with strategies to improve my resilience or my mental strength or whatever that weakness is for, for you. Um, and I, I know that I've, I'm just really interested to see where that goes as I continue doing that throughout my life. Yeah, that's awesome. Right. I mean, it's, and that's basically kind of the next step of it's like, there's sort of two elements to this, right? One is the okay, this, this stuff, this stuff will happen in my life. And then one is conceptualizing a solution. Right. And, and so what you said is that you've taken from Ray Dalio that, you know, you can adopt principles and develop principles around, you know, st you know, setbacks or adversity that would help make you better in the future. So, like, hey, that's awesome. Um, and you sort of combine both the, the solution with the implementation of it, right? Like, and I think both those things are challenging and both of them are hard. Uh, and, you know, sort of what you described is an elegant way of doing both, right? Both coming up with the solution, but also actualizing it in your life. Yeah, and I think it's really just a post-mortem on a smaller basis like a day-to-day -day basis so yeah. it goes back to the point that you made yeah for sure what is the best book alex that you've read recently and why um <laughs> i go through these interesting cycles in my life but i feel like it's you <laughs> should probably track them um i love reading to death and then i have these like i'll read non-stop for a few years and then whether it's life circumstance whatever i'll do other things and right now i'm in those other things phase right so for the last few years, I've been very heavy on podcasts, ironic given the 
print form. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to give a podcast answer only because that's how I'm consuming uh, information right now uh, for various reasons. Okay. So uh, I've been listening to Revolutions by Mike Duncan. Uh, it's a history podcast. I, I'm I love history. Uh, it, to me, again, speaks to you know learning from humanity, uh, learning from history. I think just so much and it's so rich and so many things that you can better understand to help inform what's going on right now. Uh, and, you know, Mike Duncan originally did the history of Rome, which I loved as a podcast, um, just exposed me to things that I had never really thought about um, in terms of you know, the evolution of Western civilization, really. And so now he's for the last few years done this podcast called revolutions. And so, you know, I, bunch of episodes on the American Revolution. Now I'm in the midst of the French Revolution. But just to understand, if you think a lot about why the world is the way it is, and some things are great and some things are not great, and to try to understand how we got here, I think that it's important to start at the start, right? Um, and, you know, look at how a nation was designed in terms of the governmental structures and, and the power dynamics that existed then and what they wanted to accomplish. And then you can better reflect on, you know, did they accomplish that? You know, what, what do we have now? And in what way is that a reflection of what was designed? I think it's just, I think it's important as a person to think about, you know, kind of our place in, in a society and, and what matters. It's cliche, but history, unfortunately, does repeat itself. And um, seeming like we're in a, a repetition of a, a previous day right now, I think, given the times. Yep. Um, so that that note will go in the show notes if, for folks that do want to reference that. And I'm a big history buff, so I'm going to add that to my list, Alex. Thank you. I'd like to ask you, what is the most important thing that you've learned in the last year that you think can massively impact our listeners? I think it relates to to things we've already discussed a little bit, but you know, sort of the notion that when you're when you're in a leadership role or, or kind of in a role where you're impacting others, you know, colleagues, I think that being thoughtful matters a ton and like ha having good processes and good policies, like th those things matter. They really do matter. Um, but I think that when you're affecting change or, or when you're, you know, tweaking things that will impact others, I've, and last year, I think really been much more focused on the why, not just the why of why are we changing this process? Why are we changing this policy? But the why in, in the sense of, as you implement that, sharing that with the person, right? So that the, so that your colleagues become stakeholders and partners and not subjects, if that makes sense, right? Like it's, you know, when you're like someone that struggled at work and, you know, maybe made some mistakes and you pull them aside and you're like, hey, you've made the mistakes X, Y, and Z. How are you gonna do better, right? And that's rooted in like, I think compassion, right? Like I. I you've struggled, you've, you've had substandard performance, but I think you can be good. How are we going to get there? Right? So that that's a what, right? Like you've been deficient. I would like you to be better, but the why needs to be explicit. And like, if you and I had talked ahead of my counseling session with that, that colleague, I would have said, Oh, like, I really believe in them. I think they can be great. Right. And as an organization, I think that we should love and support and grow our colleagues, our, our, our brothers and sisters that work with us, they can be awesome. That's why they're here. Like we, we hired them because we thought they could be awesome. What I've seen the last month wasn't awesome. It was not good, but we believe we're committed to our staff. And so 
I think that had that been a part of that dialogue, that would have been much more powerful to say, listen, here's a few things that, that, that concern me that, you know, kind of fell short of expectation. Uh, that this isn't good enough, that this isn't good. Um, but we as an organization believe in you. I believe in you. I think that you can be awesome. And so let's figure out together how we can do that. And I think that sharing the why, right? Like the, the why, why are we having this conversation? Why do I care about this? Like sharing the why, I think it's just so much more powerful than the what. I think that's something that I'm focusing on as well is, is the why and also the story behind it as well. Like we've already talked about us humans, we love stories. And I think that we're way more likely to pay attention to a story about the French Revolution than we are about the facts and statistics of how many people died, yep. for example. Or uh, Yeah, so that's something that I'm also focusing on. And Alex, we want to finish off with just one last question here. And I'm asking for some vulnerability from you, just like I do from uh, every guest. And at the end of our Strive meeting, so it's a, a weekly meeting of entrepreneurs, we meet for an hour a week. And then one person has the opportunity each week to say, this is what I think is my blind spot. This is what I think is holding me back from success. We go around the table, the round table, and we really drill down to what is that thing that's actually holding that person back and giving that person some feedback on areas that may be holding them back from success, organization, or not enough resilience, or maybe their nutrition is off and they're not uh, meeting their obligations. And so my question to you, Alex, is what do you think is holding you back from even higher levels of success right now? That's a great question. Um, I mean, the, the, the trite answer is me, right? Like, <laughs> it's, you know, I, I, as I think that part of being capable of d doing good things is being intensely self-critical and not like in a negative way, just in a really thoughtful understanding what's happening and why and what you're doing and why. Um, and I think that one of the, the challenges that I encounter is, like I said at one point, that one of the core lessons I learned was just the, the need to ask for feedback and the need to learn about myself through others. Um, and so one is identifying who are those others that might have that insight. Uh, and so my wife is far and away the most important one, but you know, my colleagues are that, that next tier of people that can do that. And I think that um, in terms of holding me back, I think it's, do I have the right self-understanding? Do I have the right self-perception? Like, Am I, as a professional, as an executive vice president, am I what I think I am? And I can only know that through my colleagues. And as you kind of ascend up a, a, a hierarchy, I guess, and, and get to a leadership role, that when you're in an entry-level position, there are a lot of people that can give you feedback, right? And there are a lot of people that will give you feedback if you go and get it. It's hard to ask for it. It's very, it's, you expose yourself, right? Especially if you actually invite the criticism. Uh, but there's a lot of people that will do it if you ask the right way. And I think that as you get into a leadership role or, or in a, in maybe applicable, especially like in, as an entrepreneur, there are much fewer people that, that can do that, right? Um, and whether it's because of power dynamics or because of personality or because the number of people that have insight into what you're doing, um, it's just, it becomes much more challenging to get truthful insight. And like, you, you have to want, like you mentioned it before, being uncomfortable is okay. Like you, you cannot succeed if you're not willing to be uncomfortable, but it's finding the right uncomfortable, right? It's finding the one, the, the one of the ones who will give you that insight into yourself and, and say, you know what? You, you totally mucked that up. Like, you know, you, hmm. you delivered it in a way that just didn't make any sense. Um, you know, maybe you should think about this. 
and I'm blessed to have some people that are really, really forthcoming. Um, and then there are other people I work with that I feel like they have real valuable insight, real valuable knowledge. And I don't know that I've done a great job of, you know, creating an environment where they're comfortable sharing with me. Um, and so I think that that's on me to, again, you, know, you open this by, you know, I'm going to ask questions more vulnerable. Like I need them to feel willing to criticize me and to tell me what I need to know more of and where I need to do better of. Um, because without that, I'm not sure that I can get there, right? Like it's, I can spin my wheels all day long, but if I'm not spinning in the right direction, I'm not sure how much it matters. Well, thank you for that vulnerability and maybe a good first step to getting those people to open up to you is just send them this podcast <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then, and then they'll know you really want the feedback. Yeah. Alex, I want to thank you so much for taking this time to chat with us. It was just an honor to meet with you and to, to chat. And so thank you so much for doing that. And you're someone that's really achieved remarkable things in this world. You've had an incredible impact on a lot of people out there. And so I'm beyond grateful that you sat down with us today. And if you out there want to learn about Alex, you can find him personally on Twitter at Alex underscore Rucker. Or if you want to find the Philadelphia 76ers, you can find them on Instagram at Sixers or on their website at nba.com forward slash Sixers. Alex, thank you so much, my friend. Oh, thank you, for Jared. It's been an, an incredible honor, and I, I'm deeply touched that you would even think of me uh, uh, to speak on this podcast. I know, I know you're doing great work, and you've got a great group of people there. Um, and so thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Best of luck, brother. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at Strive Accelerator. And find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.